passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, everybody, you just heard early times and cheer wine. So you know that it's time for the Knowles 24 sevens on the bench podcast, but here's a voice you never get to hear that often. And it's mine. Who is mine? I am Trey Roland and I am the former host of the wildly mediocre FSU podcast, the Rollcast, And I am here as your special, your celebratory MC. I'm coming out of coming out of retirement, like Jordan wearing 45, except much less athletic to pr- present to you the final episode of Knowles 24-7's On the Bench Meet the Beat series. You've had the boys. You've had Brendan and Chris and Josh, and they've been meeting a lot of beat. <laughs> they, uh, they had me. They've had Jeff Cameron. They've had every Wayne McGahee. They've had people from all walks in life of the Florida State beat. But guess what, gentlemen? The tables, they have turned. And now your favorite Knowles 24-7 contributors will be interviewed by their former guests. That's right. I'm going to interview my buddy, Josh Newberg. Uh, Jeff Cameron, Tallahassee legend, is going to be interviewing Christopher Nee. Wayne McGahee will be interviewing the one, the only, Brendan Sinone. And I can promise you that at least my interview is going to be really good, and I know the other guys are going to try super, super hard. Um, I can't wait for this. This is fun. Uh, Brenda didn't tell me to do this, but I'm going to say that this was a very tough off season. <laughs> this was rough on personal levels, on mental levels, on content levels. It was tough. So I have really enjoyed not only being a guest because I've appreciated the opportunity, but I've just appreciated this series in general and all the kind of outside the box things that Knowles 24 seven does on this podcast. And I really, I don't think any of these guys can hear me right now. But I've been really impressed with the way this podcast has grown, and it's because ideas like this. So I'm just, I'm, it's, it's a pleasure to be a part of it. And let's go, let's do it. First interview Jeff Cameron, Christopher Nee, what will they talk about? Will Chris just angrily grunt the whole time? Will he be excited? Who knows? There's only one way to find out, and that's stay tuned. Appreciate that stick. Let's talk to my man, Chris Nee. What an honor this is. I don't get to do this very often, and you guys had me on. That was cool, and I had a lot of fun with it. Now I get to ask you questions, which I am going to enjoy. We go way back. Chris, I got to ask you, so when you first started on the beat, 
And I'm going way back now, so I can't believe how long it's been. Has it been 14 years, 13 years? No, it's been longer. I started around 0102. I worked with Jim Henry at Scout in the early days. That was ah. a very brief time. Then I joined up with Gene at Warchant, did that for almost a decade, and then State of Florida with Rivals before this. So when did I meet you? I had to have met you in 03. I was in school still. So, yeah, probably about yeah. 03. I was still in school, yeah. so I'd say 03 is probably right. Well, a lot of things stand out about you right off the bat. And I remember early on and I, I I'm old enough now where I've met virtually everybody on the beat from their earliest days, but you have one hell of a work ethic and we're going to have fun with it. We'll talk and have a conversation, but I do want to ask you, man, where does that come from? Because look, there are a lot of good people on the beat. A lot of people do quality work, but not everybody busts their ass as hard as you do. And you've had that from the first day I ever met you. You were willing to put in long hours to develop relationships in recruiting, to write a story, you name it. Where does that come from? Uh, I think the work ethic truthfully comes from my parents, first and foremost. I just, I was raised in a house where I was the youngest of three brothers and, you know, you had stuff to do. You had to do yard work. You had to do this and you had to do that. And you kind of were held accountable. And then when I was in high school, I went to a highly competitive academic school in Jacksonville, Stanton College Prep. And I'm not the best student in the world. I didn't love school. I enjoy life a little bit too much to enjoy school too much. But it was still a competitive atmosphere, and it's a place that wants a place. You had good schools, so there was that whole element. I worked while I was in high school. I got to FSU, and I was working a regular job in addition to getting into doing this. And I think from a work perspective, truthfully, guys like Ira, um, Jim Lamar, who doesn't do it anymore, but we all know, were guys that kind of laid the foundation for me about how you go about doing a job in the sense of doing interviews, uh, vetting people, talking to a lot of people, getting a feel for what you're writing. You're not simply, you know, when you're reporting, it's about trying to paint an entire picture. And I think that was important. And I just enjoy it. I, I'm the kind of person that I, I always think about it from a reader perspective. I want to know more information. I want to have a better idea. I want to have the whole paint, the picture painted for me. So I'm trying to write from a reader's view instead of simply what I think I should put on paper. So what's the first, can you remember what's the first story you ever wrote? What's the first thing that where you were ever tasked with responsibility? Cause everybody gets nervous with that. The first time you ever do anything in a profession that, well, I, I want to get back to something in a second about when did you know this was what you wanted to do? When did you know this was going to be something that a passion that could become a career? But, but, but first that question, what's the first story you wrote? Do you remember? I can't remember the first one I wrote. I remember the first one I really enjoyed writing was about Al Thornton when he first got here before he was officially part of the team because he came in a little late and all that. Mm. Just writing about him being an unbelievable athlete who was kind of being molded into a basketball player by coming to FSU. I liked Al. Al had kind of an infectious personality. What Al became at FSU from a player in person standpoint was pretty evident the first time I ever spoke to him. And I love hoops. So like, I remember that one. That's one of those early ones that I have always kind of looked back to. I think the the title was something along the limit or like sky is the limit for Al Thornton or something like that. You know, some play on a hoops kind of storyline. But I, that's one of the early ones I remember. I wrote a lot of, tr truthfully, the early days were a lot of transcription, a lot of just trying to get stuff together, maybe providing a note for a football practice, stuff like that, as I was kind of cutting my teeth, getting comfortable with it. But Al was one of those first things that I was handed and told, hey, go do this. You just said it, so I'll ask you straight up. Hoops is your favorite sport? 
Yeah, I think out of the big three hoops, it's probably my favorite. I enjoyed playing that the most growing up. I love watching. I was raised in a family that has a whole lot of Boston Celtics fans. I was a Magic fan, and heck, we were actually kind of good when I was a kid. Um, you know, Shaq Penny years, Nick, Dennis Scott, all those guys, Scott Skiles and his bald head. Um, so yeah, hoops is kind of my backbone. I enjoyed FSU hoops when they were really good in the early nineties and when they were really bad in the late nineties. And <laughs> obviously I've enjoyed Leonard Hamilton years. I think highly of him. So yeah, I'd say hoops is probably first. I like football a ton. I like baseball a ton, but I always enjoyed playing hoops the most. So back to my earlier question, when did you know this was something you were going to pursue? Uh, you know, I kind of got into it weirdly. Drew Hankin, for those who don't know, used to be the zookeeper of animals of Section B. I knew Drew from the mid to late 90s on. I had an older brother go to FSU, and I would come out here sometimes and end up sitting in that section. Just got to know Drew and other people in that group. Drew knew some people in the business, Jim Henry, Gene Williams, for example. He kind of helped get me in the door. Um, you know, he suggested me to people. And when I started doing, I liked it. I didn't think I was a very quality writer at that point. I I liked working under people, Ira Jim, for example, who I thought were quality writers. Um, knew they were also willing willing to take the red pen and kind of cross everything out and tell you you were doing a poor job. Um, and I appreciated that, you know, I didn't go to J school. I didn't go to UF for J school. I didn't go to Mizzou for J school. I went to FSU for school and did journalism while I was there. Um, and I, I think I knew kind of from the get-go, I enjoy it. I love sports. I love being around sports. I like all the dynamics of sports, whether it's financials, the athletic events. I enjoy the recruiting portion, even though that can be tiresome at times. I enjoy all of it. So I think I knew pretty early on it's what I wanted to do. I'd, I'd worked other jobs coming up, growing up. You know, I worked in the food business. I worked in retail. I managed in retail. Uh, you know, I, I even did the nine to five banking at one point right after school, just cause I thought I needed a real job. And truthfully, none of those really did it for me. That didn't really excite me. I've always been excited by this. I still enjoy this job 20 years later. I still have those moments where like, you know, it gets the engine repped. You must've wanted to put a gun in your mouth when you were a banker. Oh God, nine to five. And truthfully <laughs> earlier than nine to five sometimes was horrible for me. I, I worked at SunTrust. I worked at SunTrust. I moved back to Jacksonville briefly after school in part because of dating my now wife and she lived in the Brunswick, Georgia area. So I didn't want to awesome. be in Tallahassee. And, uh, I just, I, I God, I hated banking with a passion. I, I, I don't mind money. I'm a math guy. I enjoy crunching numbers. So like that part of it wasn't difficult, but the whole waking up at 6am to go to bank some more, hell no, that that's not my, no. you said it and I cringe cause I know you. And I was thinking, my God, thank God you got out of that. You, I actually, you I got, a prom- got to know. I got a promotion at the bank in December <laughs> and I quit the next day because I went back to work full time for Gene. I can remember all of this. I don't remember the banking part of it. And that's what's making me laugh. I'm glad I just know you well enough to know that that would have been, I would have walked into a bank one day and seen poor Chris knee and thought, Oh my God, look at his face. It's written all over him. (laughs) I want you to rob me. I need some excitement in my life. (laughs) He's miserable. I had a, Hey, listen, this is about you, but I had a buddy graduate from Northwestern. He's brilliant. Years later, I ran into him. I said, what are you doing? He goes, I work in banking. I said, how do you like that? He goes, I work in banking. <laughs> yeah, it's not the most exciting life. It's stable, yeah. but it's not exciting. Hey, but so back to your work ethic and doing those stories early on and then later on covering recruiting. I remember as you were coming up, Chris, I would listen just for, uh, you know, full transparency for people that don't know, Chris and I are friends and uh, I consider you a friend, buddy. And, and we've, 
we've covered a lot of events either at the same time or together in a weird way. And also had some beers afterwards. And we'd like to compare notes and talk about it. But I always, when you were coming up, I, I was amazed that when you started doing recruiting specifically, man, you were always traveling always traveling. And I would talk to you and you sounded tired. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but you were, you know, obviously cutting your teeth, you know, you were, you were making the grade. Um, but I bet you, and I'm kind of curious about this because I never covered recruiting and I know so many of you guys that do, and, and I consider you one of the very best in the business. What's the key to being good at that? Is that just relationships, coaches, getting a heads up? Yeah, it's all about relationships. It's about knowing, for example, if a kid's visiting, who can drive that kid to the town? You know, is it a coach? Is it a parent? Is it an uncle? Is it a mentor? Is it a trainer? Who's bringing that kid to town? You got to know that person. Then when it gets to crunch time and you're dealing with the big time, top 50, top 100 kind of kids, they tend to clam up. They don't want to talk. So who can you go to that actually knows what the hell is going on with that kid? And the only way you can have those relationships is getting in front of the kid, getting in front of the people that know the kid, getting in front of people that the kid trusts. And that builds a trust for you because you're just another reporter. And the early days of me doing it, there weren't a ton of us recruiting reporters, but now it's a saturated market. It's become a big deal. And it still matters to distance yourself by getting in front of a kid. You build a relationship from day one. The minute FSU offers a kid, if I don't know him, I'm reaching out to him. I'm asking, you know, hey, congrats on the offer. Who did you hear from? Uh, kind of give me your backstory on your recruitment and FSU. And then I'm going to tell the kid, plain and simple, I'm going to talk to you periodically. I'm going to hit you up. If FSU is fostering a relationship with that kid, I need to foster a relationship with that kid. And I need to do it with the people that are surround them. And it's important. I, I used to travel a ton. I still travel here and there. I mean, heck, I was at a high school yesterday because it was the first day back for kids in the area. So I went to see a major prospect for FSU and spent three and a half, four hours with him, his head coach, some of his teammates and kind of just took it in. And he had a workout session by himself away from the actual team. So I hung up for that. It's all about that. You got to put in the time. Uh, I mean, it, it gets tiresome. When I did the state of Florida, I didn't think at that time at Rivals that we were particularly good in the state of Florida, and I wanted to put a stamp on it. So I went Pensacola to Homestead, everywhere in between, and I would do it two, three times in a year where I'd hit almost every school that had a major D1 prospect, either who was a junior or sophomore that I knew of that I could go see in that state. And I was going to get by whether it was a weightlifting session, a football session, just drop it in on his coach for 30 minutes, sitting down talking. You can ask the coach, Hey, who else in this area is good? Who else would you vouch for that? You think can play. I mean, Keyshawn Helton was at FSU because of a conversation very much like that with Willie Taggart for a local high school coach in Pensacola who vouched for him. So I think it's important to kind of pick those people's brains and obviously there's biases and such, but I think you also get more of the entire picture by doing it that way. I love doing recruiting that way. I would still do it that way if I didn't have two kids at home. I mean, when you have the time you can devote yourself to it, it's, it's enjoyable. It's fun, but you have to take time to do it. I drove, I mean, I had a little red Toyota. I put about 35, 40,000 miles on that car each year for about three years straight, driving around the whole damn state. No, it was unreal. I, every time I saw you, I'd be like, better you than me, brother. Better you than me. But I, well, because listen, A, I love the information that you would glean and I knew you were good at it and I knew you were thorough. And that's what people should know listening to this right now is that my man, Chris is thorough and you built those relationships. What was your least favorite part? I know you like to travel, although when you have kids, obviously you want to be home, but what was, so I, I guess this is a two pronged question because here's what I would ask you. 
the game of recruiting has changed a lot. You mentioned it in the early days. Yep. Social media has changed everything. And, and so what I wonder is what do you encounter now? What's difficult about it now and fostering those relationships with kids and coaches. I imagine most people are jaded, somewhat cynical. Uh, And then at the same time, you know, talk about some of the better aspects of, of what I guess modern technology does offer in recruiting that didn't exist when you first got started. Well, I think the better is Huddle. Huddle is phenomenal. The fact that I can hear about a kid's name and six minutes later I've watched their entire year of top highlights, that's unbelievable. It used to be YouTube, but not everybody mm-hmm. was there. It was tougher to find. Huddle is easily one of the best inventions for recruiting ever. Um, and social media is actually an asset we're recruiting, but it's also a pain in the ass. Um, it's an asset in the sense that you can find out a lot about a kid truthfully by looking at their timeline. You can usually connect with some people that directly connected to the kid and have immediate conversations, but it's also not good because of just the rumor mill. Uh, some kids kind of fall into the recruiting monster where they just use their Twitter or their social media to play everything up and you don't know what's fact, what's fiction. That's all annoying. I've never liked being lied to. I'm not one of these people like, don't waste my time. You can tell me you don't want to tell me. You can tell me that, you know, I don't need to know, but don't lie to me. You lie to me. I'm pretty much done with you. Like I'm not one of these people. I have, you know, I have 150 kids to deal with in a year, most year for most recruiting classes. I can cut a few of you off. Like it's not going to hurt my feelings. Um, But luckily I don't deal with that too much because I do try to build those relationships. And usually, you know, I'm either not going to hear from them or they're going to tell me there's not lying, which I can live with. Um, you know, the biggest negative though, is just when it's tough to truly get good info on a kid, it, it can get aggravating. It, it's a frustrating thing. There's a reason a lot of people say, Oh, I'd love to do that job. That sounds like a great job. Then you do it for a while and you realize Ooh, burnout, burnout happens pretty quickly. Yeah. It's not really yeah. tough to happen. So it, it's that it's kind of, you just got to have a healthy balance. You got to understand sometimes that you're going to, you're dealing with a lot of different situations. You know, my wife's a teacher, obviously she teaches special needs. So it's a little different, but I view it as like being a teacher. You have a classroom of 20 kids. Everyone represents 5% of your class and all 5% are different. So like, you got to figure out how to read the room, how to read the people, how to deal with the people. There's some kids that it's very easy to get through with, have a straight conversation. There's some you got to knock down walls and deal with, and there's a whole lot in between. And I think recruiting is very much the same thing. You got to, you got to figure out who and what a kid is and how you're going to deal with them and how they want to deal with you. You can't be pushy with a kid who just doesn't want to be pushy. You can't be aggressive with a kid who's taking a sweet ass time doing it. You, you got to understand who and what you're dealing with in each individual dynamic. And I think that's important. I think that can be the tough part for some people when you can't do it. And I certainly didn't know how to do that early on. That's something I've learned in doing this for 15 plus years now in the recruiting part, really for about 13, 14 years intensively, I've learned that you have to understand the individual you're dealing with. What's a, I'm curious in terms of, I don't want you to alienate anybody by singling anybody out, but you have been, because you've been doing it as long as you have, and this is another cool aspect of having been in the game as long as you have got perspective. You've seen all three schools, the big three, if you will, have their moments in the sun, fall off, rise back up in many situations. You've seen some commonalities, uh, things that uh, are, are certain uh, aspects of what you're doing that is going to send you down the wrong path and things that are going to work, certain pitches, certain personalities, certain directness that from certain coaches that work. Who's been, in your mind, based on all of your years of covering recruiting, 
the very best at connecting with kids quickly and convincing them. I'd, I'd probably have to go urban. I mean, urban, urban was insane. Like in the sense of if a kid took to him, it was really tough. And Jimbo's up there. Like I consider Jimbo when you ask me that question, Jimbo was unbelievable. Jimbo was a great evaluator of talent, especially early on, super aggressive at getting on that talent, getting in with that talent, offering him early, getting him on campus multiple times. He was really good at that stuff. And that's why he built a championship team here. But Urban was pretty unbelievable how he could do it with anyone and everyone, anywhere. And, I mean, the rise of Florida was drastic, and their success level for multiple years was really, really good under him. Obviously, it all fell apart. It's kind of crazy thinking about those two guys who I think are two of the 10, 15 best coaches of the last 25 years, and they both dealt with programs that completely fell apart on the back end of their time there. And that's kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. So is that one of those candles burn bright? You can alienate people, you can connect, but you can alienate very quickly. Uh, that's a uh, nonstop work, all that sort of thing, personality, but also what is something you just talked about two elite recruiters. What is it that allowed for them to connect in a way that many others have tried and could not? I mean, we see countless good coaches and there's a difference between a good X's and O's coach, a guy who can really coach the game and a guy who can do that and also really recruit. What what is the commonality of recruiting success? Messaging. I think the ability to deliver a concise, specific message and understanding how you're going to execute it and truly going about and executing it and finding the success you expect from it. I think that's the thing. I think with Jimbo, he preached, we're going to climb that mountain. We're going to get really good talent in here. We're going to go out there and we're going to beat people up. And you would see it in the team, the way FSU's teams and late 12, definitely 13, and even in the 14, the way they entered a field, especially on the road, they expected to win. And there was a certain swagger, and there was something pumping through the blood. And I think with UF, they knew they could go out there and just annihilate the hell out of some people for a couple years there. And it was one of those things where I think that was a top-down type of situation. I think that's kids that are just being fully bought in. I think the difficult thing is when the message doesn't connect or it falters, it's really tough to get it back on track. And I think with FSU that happened, you know, obviously I know more about FSU situation in Florida is because I deal with FSU's more, but I think strength and conditioning with Vic. And when that kind of went sideways here, that laid the groundwork for everything else to go sideways with Jimbo and such. And obviously there's a whole lot of blame to go around for why that went bad. I think with urban, when there was, you know, that team kind of fell into disarray in the sense of, having any kind of staying within the lines. And I think that kind of came to bite them in the butt and that that's why you saw it fall apart. It's one of those things where you're living on a knife's edge and when it's going good, man, it's hella good. And when it goes bad, it can go bad real quick, real badly. And it's tough to come back from. You ever get jaded? Did you ever at any point? <laughs> Do I get jaded? <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, 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 we're all jaded and skeptical and cynical in a lot of ways because when you peek behind the curtain, you see things that the general public, and I'm not sliding anybody, but if you're a fan, you go to work nine to five and you're not working in sports, you're not, you're not seeing every little detail of what makes a program. And some of those details that make a program aren't very sexy, aren't very good, aren't very yeah. enticing, but that's true across the board. I'm not singling out any university. It's just the way big time college football is. But I always wonder, because I think everybody in this business, we have our ups and downs in this business have gotten jaded to the point enough before where they've thought about walking away. Has that ever happened to you? The last year of Jimbo was the most miserable year of my life. 
I, I was miserable. I wasn't happy. I'd come home and be kind of miserable. Thank God for my kids. They blew me up sometimes. But like I, there was a dramatic shift for me from just a being happy standpoint when that man walked out the building that I didn't realize till after it happened, but I wasn't happy. I, I never thought about quitting, but man, I was miserable. It was not fun. I didn't enjoy covering the program. It was headache after headache. Uh, the ability to just go and do your job was just a waste of time. You try to set up an interview and you wouldn't get it, or it was miserable. You tried to get a coach on something. It was miserable. It just wasn't, they're not supposed to like bend over backwards for me. I've never thought that, but it was like, they were going out of their way to be difficult for everybody. And I didn't like it and took it sort of personal. And I was miserable. It was not fun. And I mean, that, that November day was a breath of fresh air for me. And, you know, I've learned in this job that that guy's just an employee of the university that I cover. Like he's not somebody held up on a mountain of any coach that is at FSU. So I don't treat them as something special or different. They're simply the head coach. They're the guy I have to deal with the most. But like the end of Jimbo was, I felt like everything was against the media at the end with Jimbo in the sense of he didn't want to cooperate. There was no interest in cooperating. He made life difficult for us. He made life difficult for the SIDs that we had to deal with. They turned into the guy stuck in the middle that we all got angry with. But in reality, they were just a messenger that that wasn't a fun time. That working relationship was miserable. And I think if you spoke to a lot of guys on the beat at that time, and I know you were part of the beat, obviously at that time, most would tell you it was, it was a horrible working relationship. It was, there was no joy in Tallahassee of having to cover Florida state at that time. I think that's an apt descriptor. Um, I wonder now, and I'd be foolish not to ask you while we're talking here, um, Give me your perspective, Chris. Obviously, we're, we're talking to listeners of this podcast and the, the people who read your work every day on 247. I, I'm curious uh, your thoughts early on in, in such a truncated and very odd world we live in right now with this new staff. We've all had a chance to meet them and talk to them. Obviously, you're continuing to foster relationships with these coaches, get to know the players. Give me your overview of where we're at. And, you know, we're, I guess it's guesswork as to whether or not we're going to have football in the fall. It seems like we're heading that direction. But how this will affect them, the short and the truncated spring football that didn't happen, and then obviously the messaging and all that's gone on. Give me, give me your overview here on Norvell and his staff. Uh, well, I think they're dealing with a year one situation that's turned into a year zero situation because obviously the circumstances are not advantageous for them having immediate success. But I do think they intend to maximize what they're trying to do. I, I clearly think they're trying to win year one. I think they were smart. They kind of took the Louisville Scott Satterfield theory to a degree. And I'm not saying they copied them. I'm just saying it's similar. Of Let's go get some transfers that can one help our depth and two help us win some more games. And we may have won. I think they've raised the floor. I don't know about the ceiling necessarily being raised. I don't think the roster is particularly impressive. Like when we sat down to do our top 40 list, you know, top 25 is not real hard. Next 15, pretty hard. That's not a great sign of a great football team. I think it's going to be a tough year. I think Clemson, Florida, are clearly more talented, better football teams than FSU. I think Boise's as good as FSU and they got to travel there and, you know, everything going on early in the season with the schedule, it could become a little bit uh, just, you know, circumstances beyond football might be a little difficult for that. We shall see NC States, one of those teams that's kind of been a bugaboo for FSU for years. So you just kind of worry about that. You know, I, I think they're eight and four would be fantastic. I think that's a positive. I think they're capable of that. 
I'm not sitting here saying that's my outright prediction, but I, you know, that's kind of how I view it. I, I think Mike Norvell is an organized guy. I think that staff knows what they're trying to accomplish. I think they know how they're trying to go about it. I just think that what they had hoped to accomplish to this point in time simply isn't realistic because of the circumstances. They're a group that relationship wise in the state of Florida and the Southeast, you know, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, they've got work to do because they, that's not been their area. Arizona, Memphis, now here, Texas for a guy like Thompson. Marv's obviously got Mississippi State ties, things like that. So there's work to be done there. And those relationships are going to be built in the spring by getting people on campus, getting coaches, getting kids, getting parents, getting school personnel that belong to the kids, getting them on campus. And that was all wiped out. And that's really disappointing because they had a really good plan that they were going about trying to execute. And they did really well in 10-day segment of doing it. But the next, you know, 38 days roughly got yanked out of their hands because of the pandemic. And that's all just disappointing. That adds up and that's kind of tough to overcome. I think they've done the best job possible to this point in time. I think they know what a football player looks like, which is an all important thing. Jimbo Fisher certainly knew that. Uh, it's just, it's good to know that a coach can go evaluate film and believe in what he's seeing instead of looking at a ranking or a list. I think that's very important in this day and age, especially when you're a program trying to climb out of a hole because you're recruiting at a different tier than those elite guys that duh, everybody knows are good. You know, you got to go find some guys. And I think they've shown they can go find some guys. So long story short, I think they're doing the best job possible. I have a belief system in them that they are capable. I think they will maximize what they have. I just don't know how much they have to maximize. Because of what you just described with expectations being minimized, certainly with a, with a roster that lacks depth of talent. And then you have the pandemic, which affects the, the building through year one. Would you go young at quarterback? Um, game one, not necessarily quickly. If it doesn't go right. Yes. I think that if you believe a guy like Tate or a guy like Chuba is your future, then you go with it. And I think that that staff believes in those two guys enough in the sense where this wasn't, they just took them because they had to take guy. These were two guys they liked. These were two guys they long evaluated. These were two guys they had long relationships with. If you believe it's time to move on, you move on. I, you know, I like James Blackman. I think James Blackman cares immensely about FSU. But I also think James has been slightly ruined by the situation at FSU, multiple coordinators over multiple years. And emotionally, he was a mess at the end of last season on the football field. And you can't have that at that position. I'd rather a guy who is kind of learning the ropes, but is good enough to help you win some games than a guy that you know who and what he is, if he still is that same guy. If he has not evolved into a better player, then yes, I think it's time for a youth movement. People should know, and they probably do just by listening to you and reading your work over the years, but I'll tell everybody out there, Chris is a smart guy. He thinks about things critically. And I would wonder, and I want to ask you this before we wrap up, um, what, what, what does, I, I'm thinking a lot these days about college football, big picture stuff, obviously. We look at the financials. You mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, where you like every aspect of it, and you're a numbers guy. Well, you see the house of cards. This is all built on now, right? We're all looking at this thing kind of, Ooh, you know, the free labor thing. And then what do we, you know, the, all of this, and we, we laugh about athletic departments going under if football season's not played. So they're going to move heaven and earth to make it happen. What would be a significant change that you would bring to the table to help college football moving forward in the next say 20 years? Uh, if you're still doing this same job and, and working in the same field as we all have for as long as we have. I mean, I think the most important thing financially for a school is to uh, chip into every piece of gold you can find 
you know, naming rights to a stadium, naming rights to an arena, uh, naming rights to a coach's office, every little thing. I mean, you name your studio, you get sponsorship money for that. Everywhere you can create revenue, create revenue, because at some point you're going to have to share that revenue, probably with the student athlete eventually. And I think it's just important to fill the coffers as much as possible. Put yourself ahead in the game. Building a football-only facility is an important thing for FSU. Relying solely on boosters for that money in the sense of booster fundraising, I think it's kind of a a system that's built to fill long-term for a school like FSU. FSU is not one of these schools that has 150 years of boosters, male and female boosters. They have essentially, at this point, 70. You know, So if you find a fourth-generation seminal, that's pretty impressive. You don't find many that are more than three at this point. Three is even tough to come by. So I think it's important to figure out how are we going to generate revenue in every form and fashion, whether, whether it's digital media rights, naming rights, uh, name image likeness, I think is the thing that can be beneficial to both the student athlete and the university if done correctly. And if the university is you know willing to endear themselves to it and believe that, hey, we can help guide our student athlete in doing this, while still essentially getting our hand filled a little bit too while doing it. I think that's important. I think schools need to be ahead on that instead of fighting it, understand how to generate more revenue instead of being scared of, oh, the student athlete might get some money. Like understand how that piece of the pie can come out of the segment you're making. Schools make a hell of a lot of money. They love to act like they're poor. In reality, most of them aren't. Would losing a football season be fatal for some? Sure. Certainly, it would be awful for FSU. It would probably cut their revenue easily in half. But you can generate more revenue than you are. And I think FSU's always been kind of slow in the revenue generation standpoint. Folks, he's one of the really good guys in this business. He's smart. He's a hard worker. You should guys, you should all know that by now. But Chris, I've enjoyed this, man. Thanks, uh, it's been fun. Yeah, man, it's been fun talking to you. We could probably talk knowing you and I for another hour uh, about a lot of different things, but I hope I scratched the service of who you are, the worker, the man and all of that. And uh, it's been fun, brother. Be well. Thanks, bud. All right. Take care. Thank you, Jeff Cameron, Christopher Nee, two legends of the game, a sparkling interview, one that really opened my eyes. I enjoyed it. I know you guys did too. I know that's a little bit of assumption, but who cares? Next up, Wayne McGahee, interviewing the one the only brendan sinone how will that interview go ladies and gentlemen we like to call this a tease in the biz will wayne get deep down into brendan's psyche will they talk about bourbon the whole time how many times will brendan sinone apologize for audio issues or his own verbal slip-ups there's only one way to find out stay tuned thanks trey we will most definitely talk about some bourbon um but we're going to talk about a, a lot of stuff today because I'm looking forward to breaking down some of the most embarrassing moments that <laughs> Brendan Sinone has had in my presence um, and, you know, vice versa. But long, uh, A long list. It is a very, very long list. We'll get into that in just a second. But first, uh, cheers. Cheers, Wayne. My buddy Brendan dropped off some bourbon at my house today with his little white gloves. Uh, being very COVID responsible, very excited about this, but it's uh, very good and I'm enjoying it. Um, but so I guess first things first, what's, you know, when you first got on the beat, pretty much all hell broke loose. Uh, it, was the, it was the national championship season, Jameis Winston, that whole thing. What was like, 
making the jump to Florida State from that and then having that be your first season, what was that like? I honestly feel like, Wayne, that it was it kind of put me in a hole coverage wise for like multiple years. Like, so, so for context, I covered recruiting throughout college. Uh, when I went to UCF as our listeners know that I, I am a proud UCF alum, uh, for better title. <laughs> That's not what my coffee mug says. Uh, but so I, I was in Orlando, which at that time was a really budding strong area for, for high school recruits, including guys like, Kermit Whitfield, who I got to know, and uh, Jacques Patrick, uh, guys who went on to contribute to some really important FSU teams. Kermit Whitfield, obviously, having uh, a marquee moment in 2013, and and so I had an idea, kind of like of what what it meant to have responsible coverage. And and when you're covering recruiting, I think like Chris is going to talk about in this podcast, like you have to kind of know the right people to talk to, uh, the, how important words are. Like you can mince things and especially when you're dealing with like 16, 17 year old kids and handlers and stuff, like it's really important to be accurate and to be detailed. So I got a good experience with that. And then I covered uh, full time. I got hired by the Sentinel out of college after I graduated to cover high school sports, which you know, you're covering anything from you know, girls volleyball to uh, boys soccer. And, and you're driving all over a, a pretty big expansive area in central Florida to cover all these different sports and trying to find interesting stories and, and also having to write like game stories on deadline, which, you know, Wayne, like for the newspaper industry, isn't easy. Uh, but if you have to do it in high school, it's even more difficult because you have to keep your own stats and these rosters aren't accurate. And if you can cover like a, a game story, uh, if you can cover a Friday night high school game accurately and cleanly, like I feel like that prepares you so well for, for other things. So anyways, I had experience Wayne, but nothing to the magnitude of, getting hired by the Sentinel to cover Florida state in 2013. My first week on the job, I guess it was my second week on the job was the Pittsburgh game was the season opener. And frankly, no one knew, right. What, what the, what that team was going to be. I think that team was right, like preseason top 15. Uh, and, and people were really curious about Jameis Winston, but the sensation that he would be for the first month or so of the season, I don't think many people expected it. And you have the Clemson game and FSU is, is not just back in title contention. Like they announced themselves in, in such a profound way. So I'm kind of still trying to get used to like, I'm still learning guys like names on, on this team who are like on the second, you know, second string. And you know, I know all the starters. I knew Kenny Shaw covered him in high school. And, and so I had a decent grasp of the team, but the, the total dynamic of the coaching staff and, and the roster from top to bottom, I'm still learning on the fly. And then all hell breaks loose. Like you said, Wayne, with the, with the allegations uh, with Jameis Winston and then learning how to cover court reports and documents and police reports, all stuff I'm learning on the fly. And then that carried over into the 2014 season too, where there was all sorts of off field issues, not with Jameis Winston, but Carlos Williams. Uh, I think Bobo Wilson with a scooter. I can't remember what, what year that was. Uh, but, but so th that was ongoing too. Uh, to where there was the code of conduct here in James Winston. They had to move practices around. So the first long story short, Wayne, the first year and a half, two years, I'm covering Florida state, which is under a microscope nationally. FSU, everyone there is, is on guard, right? So I can't really make like very good sources within the program because people aren't wanting to talk to the new kid. They're not wanting to talk to a lot of people anyways, but they're certainly not wanting to talk to the person who's working for the out of town newspaper who just started a week before the 2013 season. And, and so it took me 
until about 2015 to where I would like break minutia, like, like a transfer or something like that. So, so it was difficult in that regard. Yeah. I, I feel that because you know, I started as an intern in Georgia in 20 for like August, like 22nd or something like that in 2013. And then, you know, I started moved down to Tallahassee, got into school, blah, 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 2014. So, you know, I was right there with you, but like, man, it's, that's gotta be tough because you were by yourself, um, doing it all. And, you know, I had a little bit of help in that scenario. Um, but now we're, now we're here and you go from covering a program that won 29 straight games, had, you know, a national title, three straight ACC titles, six straight New Year's Six Bowl games, and now they've gone 18 and 19 over the last three years. How how big of a difference? God, when you say it like that, Wade. Uh. <laughs> I mean, you know, like that, that's the way you break it down, right? Like, mm-hmm. It's accurate. It's factual. <laughs> three head coaches in that span, 18 and 19. It's, it's not good. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know what my perspective on it is as a as a Florida State, like someone who grew up loving Florida State, bleeding Florida State. Mm-hmm. I know what my perspective is, but for someone who didn't have ties to Florida State and you experienced the one and now you're experiencing the other, what is it like covering this program now compared to what it was? So I remember the second time they went out to, to Pasadena. So for the game against, against Oregon in, in the Rose Bowl. And I remember being on the field and it dawning on me that before the game, I went to go take a leak with Tom D'Angelo. We were walking, we were on the field and, and we were, went to the field level bathroom. A leak on the Rose Bowl field? Not on the field, not on the field. Uh, Florida State, oh, unfortunately, kind of, yeah, Florida State kind of unfortunately took a poop on the field later that, that game. Uh, but I remember thinking to myself, Wayne, how rare it was to be not here just once, which that 2013 game was season game was magical uh, being in the mountains at sunset and the way that game unraveled. Uh, but then to be there again, I remember thinking to myself like this probably won't happen again in my career. Uh, and to have that, to have that so early at like a 24 years old and get that experience was, was something. But it, so then to fast forward to like where we are now, one thing I'll say is I've learned a lot. I've become more confident. I know the joke on this podcast is I'm not confident and, and that's true. I am full of neuroses and, and whatnot, but, but I am also very confident in my skills as a reporter and as a writer and somewhat as a podcaster, like this is kind of me playing a little bit of a spoof on myself. But when I believe in something, when I'm able to get information confirmed by multiple sources, when I'm able to watch trends develop on the field with my own two eyes and then confirm it with either people who know the game or statistics and metrics and they, they check out. If I see an alarming trend, Wayne, I've learned to say something and to cover it. And I did not do that very well at the end of the Jimbo Fisher era because I gave him a lot of credit because he, what he, what he had done. Remember I covered the team 2013 and 14. Those are my first two years covering college football. He was, a God in terms of the college, like he was he, him, Saban, Urban Meyer. Those are the three, like at the pinnacle of their career. And you're talking about like the current guys who know football, he says something in the football world, it would resonate. Uh, and you and I remember talking about this, like at the, I think it was before the 2017 season, Wayne, it's like 
we saw the cracks. We saw it starting to happen with the quarterback recruiting, the offensive line recruiting, the linebacker recruiting, seeing the development and the, the lack of continuity in recruiting and then development when the guys were, were on the roster. I remember I was talking about that, but I didn't know how to say it because I thought I was wrong. Uh, and not to say that I'm, that I've been right every step of the way, like covering Willie, uh, in that two year debacle, but at least I've had the confidence to where, and I did that at the end of the Jimbo era too, started to, it's like, if you see something and the program isn't going in the right direction, you owe it to your readers to express it. And I think sometimes that gets viewed as negative, man, but trust me, like when, I hear you. but when the team's winning, I will say really great things about them too. Cause I did yes. that. It was just at a really weird time early in my career. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's difficult to go against someone that's one of only, I think four or five active coaches in college football to have won a national title. And you're sitting here as a, you know, as, as someone who's observing from the outside, you don't get to watch practice because Jimbo had that closed up, you know, just real tight. Mm-hmm. You don't get, you know, you don't get to see that. Like we get to talk to people about it, but I mean, like you don't get to see it and you know, we only get to see what we see on the field. And you know, it's, it's hard to go against a guy who's considered one of the premier football minds in all of college, you know, in all of college football and all of football in general, it's, it's hard to do that. Um, you know, and also, you know, he earned a little bit of leeway. Let's be honest, like as, as big of a, you know, a jerk as he was to, to the media most of the time, like he, he earned a little bit of leeway just because he won a national title, won 29 straight games, won three straight ACC titles, went in six New Year's Street, six bowl games before that final season. Like he earned a bit of leeway. I, I agree with you, Wayne. He did, uh, but I've never like, I'm curious for you too. Like, I didn't know where that leeway I think I'd be more confident now uh, because everything's about context when you're trying to be responsible, like journalistically, like you can acknowledge what he did was great and that he obviously knows what he's doing. But when you start seeing JJ Cosentino being the primary backup for two years in a row, or you see the offensive line recruiting them taking six Scott, did that hurt your feelings? When you see, Man, I, I just, I, you, you say the name and I think of this, the one open practice that we got to go to where JJ failed to hand off to Dalvin cook twice. He turned one way twice in a row. And like, he did that in the game, right? Yes. But he was basically the Chris Casher of the offense. <laughs> well, the, the Chris Casher was always getting chewed out for being in the wrong place. I think JJ like was more just inept as a FBS level quarterback. Funny side note, Jimbo Fisher told Josh Newberg that 24 sevens rankings were this is when, when he was a recruit. So we were way off. He's the best quarterback in the nation. Y'all don't know what you're looking at. Uh, but like when Jimbo says it at that time, like you're kind of inclined to <laughs> believe it. Right. Um, so that's what, I don't know. I mean, his evaluations of quarterbacks prior to that point had been really, really good. Yes. Really good. Excellent. Uh, I mean, you know, pretty excellent. Even, even like the guys he missed on, you know, like Clint Trickett went on to be a multi-year starter at West Virginia. Mm-hmm went on to win a national title at Alabama. Right. Right. He was, he was a quarterback guru. I remember that was one of my favorite stories I ever wrote was a, a story at the Sentinel in 2015, whenever Golson was coming and that's kind of when it starts falling off for Jimbo, but it was about him as the quote unquote quarterback guru, the guy who no matter who his quarterback was, no matter what stop it was at, he made it work with them. Uh, and that was led to three first round draft picks in a row at the position. 
no offense, but none have really panned out in the NFL. And that includes Jameis up to this point. Hey, we're not going to talk bad about him. <laughs> Sorry. He still has time. The man threw 5,000 yards, 30 touchdowns. All right. That's factual. You're also forgetting some of the other parts, but Hey, I mean, you know he, threw, he threw 30 interceptions, but yes, you know, that's part yeah. of it. He's in a good it's spot. Wayne. He's in a good spot for it. Yeah. For resurrection. I mean, he'll be fine. Drew Brees is, you know, kicking himself right now. And you know, Jameis is probably going to be starting at some point this season. Whoa. The- okay. I mean, you draft, you know, you, you traded for him in the fantasy or, or signed him in a GM league. So I don't want to hear it. You need to be banking on him. How much should we spend on him in our, in our league as if it was a real oh, like 15 cap? million? Well worth it. Just yeah, well it's going to be a bargain in three years. I'm still on the yep. this trade. Just hasn't worked out to date. Uh, <laughs> you don't know. Uh, Brendan and I play a fantasy GM league where we basically, take control of a franchise along with 30 other people and play as, as a franchise, we go through the draft signing, you know, cap and all that. And we, uh, we played together this year. And, uh, he decided to sign Jameis for $15 million as our quarterback and trade the number one overall pick Lane hurt of Seminoles.com wanted to, uh, do many, many bad things that would have resulted in him going to jail to Brendan after he found out. Yeah, because Lane's a Bengals fan, and we were the Bengals, and we had the number one overall pick, and I traded it for the sixth overall pick in Derwin James and, like, a third-round pick. So, you know, long-term. Yeah. We ended up turning it into Derwin James and Jeff Akut. I feel so, pretty good. Real quick, Wayne, tell people how the voting – like, who, whenever I tell anyone about this and acknowledge it being nerdy, I think people are fine with it, but then tell them how a winner is determined because that's where you lose people. Uh, the winner is determined by the 29 other idiots voting for you. <laughs> So these people that you rake over the coals and take advantage of via trade are then the ones determining who did the best job. Yeah. yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. I should have won last year. Okay. All right. I mean, but, but, you didn't. Is, but, but you didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I should have won last year. Anyways, um, Brendan and I's friendship go back goes back a uh, pretty good ways, you know, since I really joined the beat after like first year, like, he was at my wedding. I was at his, um, but you know, your son, your son was my ring bearer. Yeah, I know. I was, I was getting to that. I was oh, going to, you know, be, I was, I was going to be like, you know, tell me, uh, what your favorite part of your wedding was and why it was me walking my son down the aisle oh. first learning how to walk and his little bow tie and suspenders. Cause it was real. And he nailed it. But, but you know what? One of my favorite moments from that wedding was Wayne. And this is very, uh, I feel like very Brendan, I have allergic reaction to like if a bug, some people will have bugs like fly in their eyes or something like that. And, and that, that happens for whatever reason it happens to me an abnormal amount of the time. And I'll get allergic reactions. Like I, I once had a date. It was a first date with a girl. We were like just walking around Lake Ella and a bug flew in my eye. And within 10 minutes it had swollen shut. It looked like a giant anus. My eye did. And she had to take me to the, uh, the emergency clinic. I needed to get a steroid shot in my butt. Uh, there was not a second date, but anyways, before the wedding, we're out in the middle of nowhere in, in South Georgia at like this like old winery. And this is the venue that my wife chose. She wanted a like Southern wedding and there's nothing around for like miles, no hospital around for like probably like 30 miles or so. And a bug flies in my eye. And this is like, as we're going outside to start taking wedding pictures and it's the first time I'm actually going to see Ashley, you know, the first time that day we're doing like the first look and photos and my eye starts watering and it starts getting red and more red. 
and we go into this like little shack where you happened to be waiting uh, with baby Wayne and cause you guys had gotten there early with, with your wife. And, uh, and I'm trying to ask like if anyone has any eye drops, if there's anything I can do to flush it out right now. And uh, Wayne's presence actually calmed me down a little bit to where you're like, it doesn't look that bad, buddy. And you know, it ended up getting eye drops anyways, and it worked out fine. But, but you being there and being calm, uh, when I was freaking out was a nice part of that day in hindsight, not at the time, mind you, but, but in hindsight, that was, that was one of the more memorable parts of the day that, that I enjoyed having my friend there for me. Uh, that's why you were there. Yeah. You know, another, uh, another point in time where you were freaking out a little bit and I was calming you down was when it was the 4th of July and you got, uh, you got pulled over in a state park for going like 45 miles an hour. I'm like 25. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're out there. We're all just cracking up and sitting in the back and he's freaking out about this, uh, about this police officer pulling up behind us. Um, but yeah, it's just constant. For some reason, there are moments like that. Every time we hang out, (laughs) Like every single time we hang out, there's something like that. Like uh, even when I'm not supposed to be hanging out with you, like your first date with your future wife. Oh yeah. Uh, with me and someone on the beat, for those of you who remember Dustin Tackett, we were uh, out drinking one night and uh, we were walking back to, uh, to where the car was parked. And there's Brendan and Dustin sees him getting into the car. And he goes, and for those of you who don't know Dustin Taggett, this, uh, Dustin is a very, very large human being, wonderful yeah. being, very, very large human being. But he goes running over and starts banging on the window of the first date for uh, Brennan's um, first date with his future wife. The, the end of the first date where I was, trying to, I was trying to contemplate, Wayne, whether to, uh, whether to you know, go in for a goodnight kiss or a hug. Like I was dropping her back off at her car after we went like bar hopping and stuff like that. And, uh, and I wasn't sure what to do because again, ambivalent and unsure and uh, tech and came in, came and made the decision for me. It was just a hug. Yeah. Here goes this huge, large man. <laughs> right on the window. I actually saw Chris knee that evening as well. We went out to brass tap and Chris knee. And I only told Tackett and Chris knee were the only two people on the beat that knew I was going on a first date and I was excited about it. And I ended up seeing both of them that evening within like an hour of each other. Uh. How about that? I mean, you were at my wedding too. You got to see my uh, wedding planner shoot a snake. Dude, that was the biggest snake. So I was up in, in like North Georgia, a little bit outside of Atlanta. More more stuff going around by your wedding where there was mine, but still kind of getting out in the country a little bit. Okay. Uh, enough to where there would be like a legitimate six foot snake that was probably like the width of my arm, maybe double that. It was huge. Uh, and it was around like where people were like, there were kids playing and stuff like that. And, uh, and someone got an air gun and popped it in the head. And it was your wedding planner, I think. Yeah, yep. that was that was that was something, all right. Yeah, you know, I'm over there oblivious, but apparently everyone sees this big giant snake that uh, was shot at my wedding. Fantastic. So um, <laughs> it's a weird omen, Wayne. It's a weird omen. I, I know, right? No, for the record, we are still together. She's fantastic. <laughs> Clearly, my better half, as Brendan would agree. Yes, very much so. She's nice. I don't, know, yes. I don't know what she's doing. She's a nice human being. She balances yeah. me out. Yes. Yes. Much, much less angry than you. All right. So getting back on topic, uh, bourbon. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, let's do that. You drop some off at my house. You said it's your favorite. Mm-hmm. What and why is it your favorite? All right, so this is George T. Stag, and uh, it's part of the Buffalo Trace distillery and i think people who either like are new into bourbon or like moderately into it like kind of know what buffalo trace's reputation is there's the buffalo trace bourbon which is like one of their entry-level ones about 25 bucks eagle rare a little bit more money but awesome you know you yes wayne's a fan colonel e.h taylor they got stag jr they got the weller line which is weed is they have all sorts of great stuff and it's all considered some of the top of the line but it's super hard to find uh the Buffalo Trace and Eagle Rare, even for their price points, are hard to find. I've been searching Tallahassee for Eagle Rare for like three weeks and still haven't found a bottle. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. Every now and then the Costco by me gets one or gets a few and they get it like at 25 bucks, which is absurd. And I get like three, um, but they don't last very long because it's it's really good stuff. Uh, and as hard as those are to find, though, their antique collection is what they call it. Chanel sounds really pretentious. This is the same distillery that has the rights to Pappy Van Winkle, which I think a lot of people probably have, have heard of. But they're specifically and, because of you. Well, no, I'm not specifically because of me, because I think people know what Pappy is. But yes, I did get a, a on this podcast once uh, entry into the ABC liquor store vault, and Pappy was available while it was happening. So, uh, and that's actually how I got this bottle of uh, George T. Stagway was. We were doing a podcast last Friday. It's always on a Friday, Friday morning. It seems like when the the vault opens and it's basically like a, like a raffle of you spend enough at this liquor store. And and I know some secrets on how to, how to kind of fudge the numbers a little bit uh, as you're not spending like a grand for liquor each year. Uh, But it gives you the ability to get access to a really cool collection of uh, bourbons and for me, uh, anything on the antique line is something I've wanted to try before, but I tried a George T. Stagg about three years ago at, a, at one of the bars in Tallahassee, and it was like an affordable price, and it's exquisite. It's a high-proof bourbon, I think like 12, 13 years old, maybe a little bit older, uh, and they only have like, they only select like 250-something barrels of it, so it's like limited quantity. Uh, it's about $100 normally, and if you can get it for $100, it is, you know where your money goes. It is excellent. I don't think that's too much for a good bottle of bourbon. However, it takes forever to find it in the wild, and if you can, just going around to different stores, if you do find it, it's never going to be $110. Like, It'll always be $400, $500, some places like $700, $800. Uh, and so I got a bottle of it about a year ago after my pup passed away, and it was a really long go of it. Uh, and I knew where there was a bottle of George T. Stag I had seen before while traveling about an hour outside of Tallahassee. And we had spent a ton of money when the pup was sick, like went through our savings. So it was a few months later, my wife was out of town for work. And I said, you know what? We were starting to kind of save back up a little bit. And I was like, you know what? It's been just a horrific six months. I'm going to go and get a bottle. I went and I got the bottle. I like haggled with them and got it like at a fairly decent rate, like sub $400, which I was happy with. Uh, so it's a bottle that I've always only opened for special occasions. Uh, and then I ended up winning uh, uh, the raffle for the same exact bottle last week. So now I have a bottle and a half of it, uh, and, and you are enjoying uh, a pour of it right now. It's, it's an exquisite bourbon, sentimental it's to me. Yeah, it's, it's really special. If you guys are ever, ever at a bar and you see George T. Stagg, probably doesn't matter the year, go ahead and try it. All right, and I got one last question for you, and it's a doozy. And I'm going to tell the people if you're lying because I'm looking at you. You're going to stare at the camera, staring into your soul, deep down into the soul. Trey predicted this. 
here, here it comes. Do you believe in Mike Norvell? Yes. Oh, I do. This isn't, I don't feel like I'm lying. I mean, I have some reservations, like in terms of the recruiting in the state of Florida. Uh, I don't think it's a guarantee that he in general, like it's going to work out, but uh, I have liked almost every single step he's taken so far, other than the misspeaking with the Marvin Wilson deal, which was an unforced error. But even the way he handled that and kind of owned up to it and, and handled it in such a way that made it productive and the fact that it was out of the news cycle in 24 hours, I think shows you uh, that he's a smart man, that he is uh, has a level of emotional intelligence that's really missing in a lot of football coaches, the ability to read people and understand who he's working with in different sets of like, whether it's the media, whether it's his players, whether it's assistant coaches, whether it's recruits, boosters, he's someone who I think gets it, Wayne. So no, I, I believe in him. I don't know, you know, this roster has a lot of work to do. I I think it's a worse situation outside of like the top 10 or 15 players on the team. I think top to bottom. No, I'll put it this way. The bottom of the roster I think is better than what Willie Taggart inherited. The very tippity top of the roster I think is better than what Willie Taggart inherited. That Mm -hmm. middle ground between uh, Marvin Wilson, uh, Corey Durden, Robert Cooper, I, like there's about Hamza Nazarene, Asante Samuel Jr. All guys as upperclassmen. I think Wayne are, are. I think your top ten now is as good as what it was in 2018. I think the bottom of the 85 is better. It's that area in between, between like 15 and and 75 or so. That to me, uh, Willie Taggart kind of failed at uh, and overhauling the roster. And I think that's where there's a lot of questions. And as it pertains to like Mark Norvell, Mike Norvell, and how he gets this thing going, uh, there's going to be two or three years where I think we really can't tell if he's got it going in the right direction necessarily, because I think there'll be a little bit of time to, to overhaul the middle of the roster. That's my thought. Yeah. I mean, you didn't like the top 10 comment. I, 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 no, I I didn't. Um, I like, I agree with you because how do I put this? Mike Norvell is going to get one year of Marvin Wilson. Yes. He's going to get one year of, you know, like one yeah, year. So. Like, but he, he didn't get, he didn't get Cam Akers. He didn't get two years of Marvin. He didn't get, you know, two years of, of Corey Durden. Like he, he didn't, he didn't get the like top ends. He didn't get multiple years from the top end and the guys behind it, the underclassmen, you know, like even up until the end, Jimbo was still bringing in like some dudes yeah, I know that final class that Jimbo brought in had Cam Akers, Marvin Wilson, uh, Caitlin Laborde, Hamsa, all this Hamsa. I mean, that that was a like class full of you know highly ranked players. You know, the, the past few classes like Florida State hasn't recruited at that level the past two years, and now you know Norvell's having to deal with that. So I, I guess I get what you're saying. Like, the, I guess the top guys that are, you know, upperclassmen, like he's mm-hmm. getting those, which I guess is a bigger benefit than what Willie Taggart got because he got those guys as young guys, but he also doesn't get a chance to develop those guys into better players than what they currently are outside of Mark. Like, yeah. Th- there may be a weird scenario where in, in two years, there's a log jam of like, are you going with seniors who, 
up to this point, like the guys who were sophomores, rising sophomores, like how many of them do you think are going to be NFL players? Like we don't know that. There's not a clear Derwin James. There's not a clear Jalen Ramsey. There's not a transcendent talent in the bunch. There's guys who are really contingent on how they develop, whether you think they're going to for sure be NFL picks. Like I think Pope can be, I think Akeem Dent in the right position can be. I think Travis J could be, we haven't even seen Travis J play. Like there's question marks all over. My point being is like, depending on how those guys develop when they're upperclassmen and how Norvell recruits with more time, not just in the Southeast, but in Florida. And if he's able to start getting in the, the blue bloods uh, that are needed to win championships, it's going to be really interesting that the roster dynamic in a couple of years. That's why like, I, I, I believe in him, but he does have a task ahead of him. That Very, very much so. Yeah. Like it, it is a, it is a very tall task. It's a tougher task than I think the one that his predecessor inherited though that was an ex- it's a tough it's a tough task because like but it's it's different like they Willie Taggart in- inherited a roster that was still at the time pretty darn good but it just had it had a bunch of guys that you know just weren't bought in didn't care the the culture around the program was awful yes credit to Willie Taggart and you know it's very well documented, you know, my thoughts on him and his tenure at Florida State. But if, if we're going to, you know, talk about, you know, what he did well, it's he changed, he did a good job of changing the culture at Florida State. That's very clear. And, you know, getting guys to go to class, which is, you know, which is part of that. So credit to him for that. Um, but he also made the, the, the roster got a lot worse under his tenure than mm-hmm. what it was. So, like, I think that Norvell's inheriting like better people, but not better players. So we, I guess one, one last question for you, which is tougher. Uh, uh, that's a good question, Wayne. Long-term. I mean, we saw what happens when, and Willie Taggart had his flaws in terms of program management, organizational skills, and even him just having a direction of where he wanted things to go kept changing constantly. Uh, defensive scheme was changing, how he viewed like his, his coaching staff and how he wanted his offense to operate, who he wanted to call his offense, uh, types of players he wanted to create. That all changed consistently, so it's tough to tell. But but one thing that I feel like he had a really tough task in and, and I know it's been documented, but it can't be stressed. Like the, to have to overhaul, not just a roster, but a roster of guys who many had checked out, hadn't been developed or coached properly for a full year. And when I say properly, I don't mean like bad coaches. I mean, coaches who just weren't emotionally invested in them. I don't mean, I don't mean like, like, you don't mean like Bill Miller coaching the linebackers for three years. Yeah. That's like, you had guys who were just not, like Raymond Woody wasn't a very good linebackers coach. Bill Miller was at that point, in his career shouldn't have been coaching linebackers at this level. Uh, Brad Lawn in his final year at Florida state was useless. Essentially as good as he was early on when he first got to Florida state and developing DeMarcus Walker, Charles Kelly, probably not a FSU level defensive coordinator. And certainly uh, not with the supporting cast that he was given. I mean, there Rick Trickett, not coaching at an FBS level now for a reason, the offensive line coach, like, like there was negligence under Willie Taggart or sorry, under Jimbo Fisher uh, that made it difficult for Willie Taggart. I would rather have the group of like guys like they have now to where 
and this is on, with the understanding that Norvell's going to get a couple years, right? That he has time to turn it around. Uh, you can't go ahead and say you think everything's going to be fine like Willie Taggart did. That's a misstep, and that changes perception really quickly. Uh, but yeah, I'd rather uh, you at least have some foundation to build on. Willie Taggart had to blow it up. He chose not to. He took half steps, uh, and some of that was being handcuffed by the, the academic. Yes, and that and credit to Willie Taggart for fixing it. He was dealt a bad hand there. Uh, but I would rather at least have some kind of foundation for normalcy, even if there's a clear cap on what you can do. I'd rather have what Norvell's inheriting, even with less talent than what Willie Taggart inherited, because it was an absolute mess. We knew it was a problem, but it was worse than we ever, I think, even uh, assumed going into year one under Willie. Yep. I, yeah. Um, I mean, that's perfectly way to sum it up. Thank you. The thing that, you know, that separates Taggart from Norvell is that leading up into that game, um, or that Virginia Tech game, Willie Taggart was telling folks that, you know, they were going to be very good, like they would win 10 games, like they were going to blast Virginia Tech, and then it didn't happen. Yeah, he's telling boosters that right before, like, yeah. like and then, 24 hours before the game. Norvell comes in and he says it's going to be a process. Like setting the tone for what it's going to be was so important. And at the time, you know, when we talked to Willie, this is going on really, really long. Like, do we need to cut this short? Soon, soon, but go on. Get let's let's uh they can wait. Hey, they got Christney and Jeff Cameron already. And I promise you the Trey and Josh one is gonna be fireworks. So, you know, they can they can chill a little bit and indulge indulge us. Yeah. We give them free bourbon advice. Exactly. Oh, Josh is coming on after. I got plenty of time. <laughs> All right, the uh, but the the the, set, the setting the tone is is so important because if you're basically like lowering and raising expectations, right? If you're look at that Homer Cup. Uh huh. I see. It's my it. wife. It's my wife's FSU tumbler. Uh huh. Homer. <laughs> I actually enjoy like FSU. I don't know why people think I don't like the program. Just because I went to UCF and have passion about the school I went to doesn't mean I don't like FSU and enjoy uh, whatever. Yeah, I mean, you, you're talking to me. We've had this. We've had many, many discussions over the years about Florida State, and you always taking the contrarian side. Well, you know, someone's got to do it on speed because it makes you sure this isn't going to be me. It ain't going to be you. I'm um, but I, I, I do think that the way that Norvell has set the tone is, is set him up for success because, you know, at, at this point, Florida State is what it is, and six wins is what Florida State is right now. And if he exceeds that, then he's doing a good job, but he's not setting himself up for failure by, you know, not winning, saying he's going to win, you know, eight games or saying that they're going to beat a team that they're not going to beat. Um, but that's just that was that was my last point. Life's all about expectations, Wayne. It's if if you're over by a little bit, great. If not, you know, life's horrible. And it's all kind of about balancing and managing those expectations. Which is why I apologize so much on this podcast. I want people to have a really low opinion of me and the quality of the podcast. And when we shoot above that bar, uh, they're really grateful for it. Well, I mean, well, I have a I have a low opinion of you anyway, so we're good. <laughs> I'm kidding. I have, I have a high opinion of my buddy, Brendan. 
I do think he, he very much outkicked his coverage, though. With my wife? Yes, she's a very nice lady. You know, people have been telling me I've outkicked my... She is. People have been telling me I've been outkicking my coverage for a very long time, no matter who I've been with, dating-wise. Maybe after I mean, a while, maybe after a while, I just kick the coverage or have the coverage drawn up perfectly. Maybe I'm not that bad. I mean, you're wearing a wife beater. Well, okay. This is a tank top and it's got an American flag on it. And I'm being a patriot right now. I got it from Target for like $7. All right. We should probably wrap it up. That, that's against flag code there, buddy. What? How? You don't wear the American flag. You're not supposed to. Get it really? Yeah. <laughs> Why would so you take your wife beater off once we're done with this video chat. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, but I think that's going to end it for us. So back to you, Trey, for your talk with Josh. Another, as the kids say on the streets, banger of an interview. Wayne, Brendan, just phenomenal stuff. So proud to be a part of this special episode. But guys, episodes like this, they just don't come cheap, especially when you have sponsors that don't actually pay you any money. But guess what? You got to hear the commercials anyway. Stay tuned for my blockbuster interview with the one and only Josh Newberg after these commercial messages. Stay tuned. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ah, well, thank you from the word of, of our lovely sponsors that are definitely not paying me, but also certainly not paying the hosts of 24-7 either. So we've got that in common. Now, listen, you've trudged through some great interviews, guys. You had Chris Knee being interviewed by Jeff Cameron. Mm. You had the one and only Brendan Sinone being interviewed by Wayne McGahee. And now we've saved the worst interviewer for last, which is me, but possibly the best interview which is the pillar of stability, the man upon which this foundation is built, the one, the only Josh Newberg. Josh, I am looking forward to this. You and I have spoken many times on my podcast, but I don't think I've ever formally interviewed you. I've just pumped you for recruiting information because the people want to know what the teenagers are doing. So I'm looking forward to diving deep into your, uh, your headbanded head right now. I'm looking forward to it. How do you feel? Yeah, we've sat down numerous times. I probably was the most reoccurring guest on your podcast, correct? So you've interviewed me six, seven, eight times already. That's right. I I consider you a friend. You don't have to admit, I don't want to get you in trouble with your people or anything, but I'd say we're friends, Josh, but I'm looking forward to this because I really, um, all jokes aside, man, you're definitely, you're definitely a pillar of the Florida State beat. I think you fulfill a very interesting role, which I find is unique. However, just to kind of start at the beginning, 
how'd you first get involved with 24 seven and just kind of recruiting, recruiting news in general, not to stereotype you or anything, Mm -hmm. but you don't look like a guy who gives too many craps about sports. So what was it? The family connect? Like, did you fall into it or do you actually have a passion for this? That's burned out slowly over time. Uh, I fell into it. Uh, I was a, I was heading into my fifth year, my red shirt senior year at Florida state. And it was in the spring and my cousin asked me, my cousin, Jamie Newberg, who worked for either rivals or scout. He, well, we worked for scout at the time. And he asked me if I wanted to do an internship with the site called the territory. A lot of people listening to this will remember the territory. Um, Jim Henry and Dave Peters were the publishers on that site. And I used to live across the street from Dope Campbell stadium in Indian village. And I said, well, what do you guys want me to do? And he said, well, Dave lives in Jacksonville and he needs somebody that can go to practice, be there at the end to interview Bobby Bowden. All you got to do is stick the mic in front of Bobby Bowden and go home and transcribe it and send it to him. That's it. That's all we need you to do. And we'll pay you 400 bucks a month. Hey. And I was like, my parents at the time were giving me $400 a month and I was living like I was fine off $400. Yeah, I was fine. I didn't need any money. Like I was fine off $400 a month. And, um, so of course I was going to do it. And I started doing that throughout the spring. I helped a little bit into the summer, um, doing some like uh, watching conditioning and doing some stuff like that. And then the fall came around and, um, I guess most interns want to be on the field and stuff. And I told Dave Peters, like, I'll help you in the fall, but there's one thing I'm not going to football games. Like I'm not working on Saturdays and Dave's like, so you don't want a credential. And I was like, no, he's like, all right, good. That's one more for us. Cause he was like, I was worried about that. And then um, fall came around and signing day came and I didn't cover any recruiting. Dave asked me if you want to cover recruiting. And I said, no. And I went, And he asked me though, if you could go to Madison County to go to a commitment. And I didn't even know what a commitment was. And he said, this kid, Gino Hayes is picking between Florida state and Tennessee. And I was like, all right, you need me to go there. What do you want me to do? He's like, well, the kid's going to sign a letter of intent. And then after that, get a photo of him and ask him why, you know, he picked FSU. I was like, all right. So I get there and, um, there's about 50 kids, a school, you know, uh, classmates in this uh, coach's off coach's classroom. And there's a couple media members from the Democrat plus me, plus a bunch of teachers. And then Gino Hayes and his parents walk in and you could just tell like they weren't too happy looking. And his coach said a quick thing to um, everybody in attendance and Gino and his parents looked like they were, they had seen a ghost and all of a sudden Gino and his parents go back into the coach's office, which was kind of connected to the room, like this glass office. Yeah. And they end up staying in there for like an hour and a half, two hours by the Are time. You guys they all, come, is everybody still outside waiting for this to yeah. happen at the time? So they come out <laughs> after about an hour and a half or two hours. And at this point it's like me, a person from the Tallahassee Democrat and like two of his classmates in the room at this point. Nobody's hung around. I mean, this was 2004, 2005. Yeah. And um, Gino Hayes came out, signed a piece of paper, put it in the envelope and like went to get up. And I was like, who is it? And he looks up and he just goes, FSU. 
And I guess him and his parents had this huge dispute in the back room about Tennessee or FSU. Um, FSU won out. Gino was not happy about it. Nobody seemed to be happy in his family. And that was my first ever recruiting experience. How is that the first, like of all the most unintriguing that you sat in a room for two hours and you're like, you know what guys, this is what I want to do for the rest of my career. That's awesome. That that's what, that's what got you in Josh. So that's a really funny story. I want to fast forward a little bit Mm -hmm. because we know you, you, you worked at the territory. You covered USF. Yeah. So, when so, did... so I, so I graduated real quick. Graduate, I'll just run okay. through it, the yeah. timeline. So I graduated from Florida state in 2005. My cousin, Jamie said, um, Hey, the USF site on scout.com is non-existent. They just moved from into the big East. Um, they're going to be a big time program. Like if you want to come and cover this site, the same way you did FSU, I think you could really grow this thing. Um, so I left here and I went to Tampa uh, and um, started working in construction and doing the USF site on the side. I did that for four years, and then I left Scout because they wouldn't let. I asked several times to do something other than the USF site, which I did a great job on, and they weren't really hearing it. So I left them and I went to work for a company called Elite Scouting Services. So I was on the other side of the business for about ten to twelve months. Um, we were. I was working with Charles Fishbein. Fish. A lot of people know him. Um, selling a service to the colleges. So I was on the other side gotcha. of the, of the industry. Um, yeah. And then 24 seven came calling in 2010. Okay. Now did 24 seven approach you? Did you approach them? And what was their initial, like, what was their initial vision for the site? Were there a bunch of other team site was Florida state? One of the first ones, just give me how that initial conversation. This went, is went funny. Down. I went to a camp called gridiron Kings with my cousin when I was working for elite scouting services. It's the July camp. It's the final. It was after the opening. It was um, a seven on seven tournament in Disney for the best players. And my cousin was like, Hey, come to, Orlando. I'm going to introduce you to some people from ESPN. We'll see, you know, if we can get you anything like a job. So I'm in Orlando and I'm there and, um, I hadn't talked to anybody from ESPN yet until JC Sherbert came up to me and JC Sherbert said, Hey, uh, I want to talk to you if you got a little time. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm here for. Um, and he's like, all right, come, come meet me and Jerry Hamilton and Jerry Hamilton worked for ESPN at the time too. And I was like, all right. So I remember we're sitting on a park bench and I was like, what's up? And they're like, all right, listen. And I, here I am thinking like, they're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ESPN. I made it. JC's like, Hey, all right. So here's the deal. Me and Jerry are leaving ESPN. You can't say a word, but we're going to this new company called 24 seven sports. We want you to come. And I'm like, what do you mean you want me to come? And they're like, well, we're trying to put together a network. Listen, it's, it's the same owner that built rivals. He's, he's launching 24 seven sports. It's going to be the same sort of network. Um, and we're trying to fill it out and we really want you to run the FSU site. And that was in July. And let's just say by the end of August, I had signed a contract with 24 seven sports and the site launched on, I, I want to say like September 16th. So like and two now, weeks into the season in 2010. And now you're both successful and wildly, wildly rich. Um, yeah, Josh, right. what, um, what did the site like start out as like, what, what, what has gotten better since 24 seven sports is inception, but also kind of conversely, what are some things you kind of miss about the old wild West days that are, is different now? Um, I'm, 
in the beginning, beginning, it was almost just like a blog site. The front page was just like a scrolling blog. Um, and kind of in the beginning when I was in to go back one question, when I was pitched about 24 seven, a lot of it was about, was it was going to be kind of like Facebook. Remember this is like Oh nine, 2010. So it was going to be like, you would follow certain things and it would show up in your feed. Oh, okay. So 24 seven sports was going to be like a scrolling feed and you could, you could go to all the home pages, but you would also follow all the writers and it was, it was going to be built more like Facebook and, you know, it never transpired. And I think this is better anyway. Um, what do I miss from back in the day? If anything, it could have just been in a terrible, terrible place. I don't know. I was, it was a kind of a good old boys club, at least within 24 seven before we were purchased by CBS for sure. Uh, it wasn't so numbers driven. It wasn't, um, we didn't have an HR. <laughs> there was no HR. You, yeah. Like Tim Watts from BOL was a, was HR. <laughs> um, nah, it's always been, it's always been really good. And it starts with Shannon, uh, Shannon Terry, who's the CEO of the company. Um, Shannon's a maniac and he really sets the tone and he hires maniacs and, like one of the reasons why I work so hard is because I don't want to let down the other people that I work with because they're all working super hard. Like this isn't, I, I just try to keep up. I feel like. What's been the site's biggest improvements since it started? Has there been like an evolution of really like, wow, I'm really proud of that sort of work that we do, whether it's with the recruiting info, the number of sites, the CBS deal, what's, what's one component of 24 seven sports now where you're really just kind of blown away by how good it is. 24 uh, seven sports has changed the game in two ways. Two major ways is with the composite rankings and the, 24 seven sports crystal ball. I think those two things have kind of catapulted. I think those two innovations have catapulted 24 seven sports that along with um, just constantly updating the tech side of things. But those two things, I mean, for years when I was working for scout and even in the early years of 24 seven sports, everybody would be so proud of their rankings and everybody would thump their chest about the rankings and everybody would kind of hang their hat on, on where they had guys ranked and versus these other companies. And once the composite came around, the importance of rankings, like those competitions that we had within the industry were gone. At least in my mind, I didn't care about the rankings anymore. Like who, right. who was getting got, I don't mean like I didn't care about the rankings. I just mean, I didn't care about the ranking competition between us and the industry. Cause we threw them all to the composite and got a number. And then the crystal ball fans want to know two things. They want to know how good is he and where's he going? And we yes, kind of dominated. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you change? Where are some areas of opportunity for you guys? Where are some things that I don't know, maybe with being a larger structure, maybe some of the personalization has been corporated out a little bit. What do you think, man? Where are some areas of opportunity for your company? I don't Every time I got bored, I would just, I'd, I've done things. So like Facebook live was a time where I was kind of bored with, Oh, with you regret that, on. don't you? you well, that was a terrible <laughs> move. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, that was the shtick that I played on there. I, I love getting on the there shtick. and doing it. That was totally the shtick. Um, it was easier to yell at people if I acted like that and, and acted annoyed. Uh, so, so that filled a void for me for a while. And then, um, the introduction of this podcast is kind of where the Facebook live fell off. Cause 
me and Brendan will do two pods a week. So we'll spend, you know, two and a half to three hours a week doing these podcasts. And I don't feel a need to hop on Facebook. Like how much more do people need of me <laughs> talking the same FSU football team? <laughs> Cause I don't even talk the other sports. I only talk FSU football. That's it. Probably just to give you like a, a sanity break from saying the same, like <laughs> kids top 12 list over and over. Um, so that's interesting. You mentioned some of the, all the different things you see. I like you guys. Cause every one of you fills a specific role. Mm-hmm. You've got, got Brendan who does the football analysis piece. You've got Chris knee who I find to be a voice of reason, but also very well-rounded Zach really uh, shout out to the intern. Zach has really, really blossomed into uh, I'm very impressed by his work on the recruiting side. Josh, what do you, what is your role in this big team and a tougher question? Do are you personally creatively fulfilled by that role or do you wish it would expand or do you have some things that you wish you could change about your role going forward? Like where do you fit in? Uh, our roles on 24 seven on the Knowles site specifically are so they're so well-defined and they're, they, they fit each other. They fit so well together because like, because of the reasons that you said um, like Brendan brings that analysis angle to the site for sure. We didn't have that when it was just me and Chris, Chris is super thorough. He's the routine guy. He's the one that opens the doors every morning. He's the ones that closes them on the site. Um, he doesn't like the, uh, the shit storms <laughs> and that's kind of where I come in and that's what I live for. Like if it's not, if it's not raining and hailing and, and storming, then I'm kind of bored. And I like the, I wouldn't say the controversy, but like, I like the, whenever something pops up, getting down to the bottom of it and, and getting on the inside of it and telling the story and telling it correctly, telling it timely, um, and being right and being first. So I just, I like those things. Do you wish you could do more of that? Do you do enough of that for your life? Um, do you wish you could maybe break some news for other teams just to kind of scratch that itch? Well, sometimes not, not to say that like I create news, but sometimes I wake up with that mentality. Like, okay, there's news out there. Like I just got to find it. And right. It, sometimes, um, if I don't break it, nobody's going to break it. Uh, or maybe people don't even know there's news out there. So yeah, that's kind of how I get going. But also now with the podcasts, um, it has been a lot of fun. We get to do these series. Me and Brendan spend a lot of time talking about, uh, the series that we want to do. Uh, we've become good at these podcasts. I think it's another form of content. It's not just an audio, you know, it's not just a pod. Um, as far as, you know, getting out there, I feel like I'm always pushing the boundaries within the space that I'm working in. I realize that, you know, we're working within a college football space with that audience that is tuning in for that specific reason. So yeah, I'm always trying to like, push the boundaries within that let's just say understood understood mm-hmm. uh and uh, i think it's noticed I, I think it's noticed when you push the boundaries do you ever wish that you could talk about things outside of college football or do you know that that wouldn't be received well mm. i like to talk about things outside of college football that aren't polarizing i mean the Knowles 24 7 platforms 
whether it be the site, Twitter, or um, the podcast isn't the place to talk political stuff. I, I understand that's what people are getting away from. Um, I think one of the things that probably saved my job and one of the reasons why I'm here is because I started the big three roll up and that gave me like an outlet to push boundaries that, um, just wouldn't not, it just wouldn't be appropriate for the job description that I'm in for the job that I'm getting paid to do here at Knowles 24 seven. Um, I can't do a lot of things. I can't use a lot of the relationships that I've developed, um, through the years just on an FSU platform. So, I wanted to talk about different things. I wanted to interview people that might not just be FSU related that, that have, I've come across throughout my career. And um, I think that's allowed me to feel uh, content just going on with Knowles 24 seven. Good Josh. Cause we don't yeah. want you going anywhere now. You break my, my, my fate. I know he's so young and vibrant. You can't even tell. Josh, my, my personal favorite thing you do is I enjoy somebody who breaks news. Like I enjoy like true journalism, sleuthing, getting sources, everything. So over the years of covering the beat, those long treacherous years, what is your favorite piece of news that you've ever broke? Mm. And also part two, what is a story that you wish you could have told at the time, but now you can because the players have left the players in the story have left. Oh man. There's just so many recruiting stories that I, I just, I don't remember them all um, because you just turn and burn. Right. Mm-hmm. And you don't really look back and think about them. Um, but what was the first part of the question? Favorite piece of news that you ever broke either, either the most recent news about after the wake forest game. Cause that was the most intense piece of news that I ever broke. Like, God, you got some hate for that. My brother, <laughs> just from like a personal thing. Um, maybe that was because it was like, maybe that was because I did like stand on it, even though we got blowback. I was just, I was very sure in what we reported sure enough to like yell at Brandon <laughs> and Chris. Eh, sometimes, sometimes he deserves it. No problem. Um, so that was a good one. Maybe uh, breaking the Jeremy Pruitt news. Uh, I remember driving back from Orlando. I was at the state finals game and I was on the highway on I four and my girlfriend at the time was really mad at me because I was late for a Christmas party that we were supposed to attend. And <laughs> For Jeremy Pruitt? <laughs> no, I was already going to be late because I was oh, okay. attending um, the state finals game on a Saturday night, and she didn't want me to do that at all. So I'm driving back from the state finals game, and I get word from a good source that Jeremy Pruitt just accepted the job, and it's like 11.45, and I pull off the highway in I-4, and I fire up my hot spot, and I broke the news um, that Jeremy Pruitt had been hired. And I get to the party, and like I'm, you know, we talked about this with Chris on the last pod, but when you break news, like you're high, you know, like you're feeling yeah. it, especially big news. And I was, this was back in 20, right after the 2012 season. So I was still young in this game and I was so happy. And I just remember getting to the party and she was so mad at me. <laughs> like she was so Brought you down immediately. <laughs> yeah. So that was a fun one, but that one meant a lot to me. Um, I wanted to break that one, but yeah, there's been some good ones. That Taggart one with after the Wake Forest game, that whole saga was very, very interesting. And I, it was good journalism, man. You stood by your sources, immense pressure from all over the place. And it was cool. I, I yeah. think that's a good choice. 
before I, we talk about the Florida state, like media, since this is the old meet the beat <laughs> series. Um, wonderful name, by the way. Um, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to get your take on the market, but first, is there one story? Like, obviously you got to like, is there any stories that you have maybe with like prior coaching staff? So you couldn't tell at the time, oh, but now uh, it's your platform, Josh, what's a good story that you've had to hold in all these years. Um, so many, I mean, just the relationships that I had, like, and, and I just remember talking to those guys early on and just remembering the intensity in everybody's voice, like Eddie Grant and James Coley. Yeah. And those guys back in like the 2011, 2012 days when they were, when they were trying to build it. I remember talking to those guys a lot. I'll always remember that. And just having seen different coaches come through um, and see that like, not everybody has that energy and that focus and that, like commitment to it all in the, in the vision. Um, that was pretty unbelievable. Um, Jeremy Pruitt, I used to talk to him almost every night on his way home from work. Like at every night you talk almost, to Jeremy Pruitt every night, <laughs> almost every single night. Yeah. And he was kind of the same way. Like I honestly think he used to just want to call me. He used to just go over the two deep depth chart in his head, like out loud, like, Every yeah. player on the, on the two deep depth chart, he would just uh-huh. want to talk it through like where they stood, what's going on. And, and almost every night, um, yeah, we, we would talk it three, four nights out of, out of five a night on his way home. I love it. Um, Jimbo, I got to, um, when I got hired, there was a guy named Ronnie Sanders who's still on the Auburn site. And he told me that he used to work with Jimbo before at Auburn and Hey, I'm going to see if we can get a meeting before the season starts. I'm like, all right. So I'm about to start the site. Jimbo's about to coach his first game at Florida state. And I go up to Tallahassee eight days before Jimbo's first game. And I think I'm Ronnie's just going to bring me up there and I'm going to shake Jimbo's hand. I'm going to go home, but it was worth it. Cause I was about to start this new career. So I was like, yeah, right. I need to meet Jimbo. So I remember going up there and I had already known Dossie and I knew a couple guys. So I hung out in their office for a little bit. Bob Lasavita hung out with him. And I remember somebody coming in saying, Hey, Jimbo's ready for you. And I go in and I go into uh, Jimbo's office in that big office and he's sitting behind the desk and in front of him are three chairs and me and Ronnie sit in two of them. And the third one is occupied by James Coley and I end up sitting in Jimbo's office eight days before the first game starts for two hours. And Jimbo went down the whole roster. Um, he talked about every player. I remember him talking about Bjorn Warner and LaMarcus Joyner and just how good these guys were going to be. Um, he had a dietitian at the time that was the son of the CIA uh, psychologist. And he knew a little bit about that stuff. And he, Jimbo said he did a, um, profile for every player on the team. And he showed me this stack of paper. And I remember he pulled one out and it was like Marcus Joyner's profile. And each profile was like three pages long and it had on there, um, the type of personality the player was, what he responded well to, what he didn't respond well to. Like it was basically just a, a psychological profile on every player on the team. And Jimbo was also, I guess, watching his weight so at, the, at one point, somebody brings in a silver platter of triangle watermelon cuts. And Jimbo's just talking to me 
eating these triangle water saying that, you know, he's trying to lose some weight. And somebody suggested this was like how it, and it came in on a silver platter. <laughs> seedless, seedless or seeds? Uh, no, it had seeds. And meanwhile, James Coley, while he was talking to you, just anyway, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. James Coley is sitting next to me the entire time. And is, and I already knew James prior to this when I was working at elite scouting services, but his yeah. head is just down and he's scripting plays for like two hours. Just every now and again, he'd look up and ask Jimbo something. And even back then, um, Jimbo was very aware of the media. One, one other thing that stand, the last thing that I'll talk about from this meeting was um, he had, he had Xerox cutouts of everybody in the media's face and, and he had them in front of his computer so he could start learning everybody's name in the media. Like this is how focused Jimbo was in 2010. Oh, that's wild, man. That is an awesome story. I've heard snippets of that, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's always a fun little, like little new detail that I hear every retelling. So we talked about you. We talked about 24 seven. This is the meet the beat series. I feel like Florida state college football coverage in general is a very unique market, very passionate fan base, very regionalized, but I feel like even the FSU beat that media is even more unique in a in unique, crazy world off on its own. So Josh, what is your take on the FSU market? Do you like the competitiveness that sites like 24 seven, war chant tomahawk nation have do you enjoy the competitive aspect or do you because i i kind of have an insight into how you think do you kind of wish that everybody would be a little bit more big picture considering that the typical florida state consumer doesn't just consume one they consume all and a little bit of collaboration might help the market as a whole Mm. what's your take on the market and kind of the strategy that that it's at right now i love that it's competitive because i i'm in it to compete if it wasn't competitive i'd be bored Um, I think, I think the market works really well together outside of war chant. I think everybody comes, (laughs) well, I mean, they won't even come on this pod, but you know, when I started, I reached out to bud and at Tomahawk nation and ever since then me and bud have been fine. Um, I helped get them over here a little bit to 24 seven sports, talk to them, Got him over here. It's incredible that we're working together. Um, I mean, when you started your pod, I reached out to you right when you started. I knew Brendan before when he was at the Tallahassee Democrat. We hung out socially. Um, I hung out with Chris Nee uh, before he left. I, I was I recruited the hell out of him over to twenty four seven sports because um, because why not? You want to you want to put yourself around the best. Um, the, it, Hold and up, then the Josh. big picture and then the big picture, like, yeah, I think, um, for people that are confident with their position and where they stand in the market, in the universe, those people right. are, are fine with, um, competition and, and the way it works out. Were, were you in the war chant guys, like you and Gene, was it always frosty? Did you like leave them with like a bar tab one it's night? It's really not a big deal, sour? right? It's really not a big deal. Here's how it happened. And in, in my view, and it's really simple. Um, when 24 seven sports hired me, Jamie, my cousin was actually, I think, you no, know, he was with ESPN, but Gene had reached out to him because Chris Nee left and Chris Nee took the rivals Florida job. So Chris Nee was no longer running recruiting at WarChant anymore. And I had signed my contract with 24-7 Sports. And my cousin Jamie called me and said, 
Hey, did you sign? And I had forgotten to tell, tell him that I did. And I said, yeah, why? And he's like, all right, well, Gene Williams asked me to reach out to you and just, you know, put out feelers if you're interested. And I said, I, you know, I signed, it's, I signed. He's like, all right, no problem. I just told him I'd reach out. And that was the end of it. And then like in the very first game or time that I was up in Tallahassee, Gene was walking by me on the sidelines and I said, Hey Gene. And he just like, he walked by me and didn't, didn't even acknowledge me. (laughs) And from then on, I was just more, more or less surprised that like I would be somebody worth ignoring. So from then on, you know, I, I had a brother that was 18 months younger than me and we just fought like cats and dogs. And one of the things that I always learned with my brother is like, you never show your weakness. Like you never show that something bothers you. Right. Right. So once Gene, once I, once I knew I bothered Gene, it was on, you know, it was, it's just like, I could pick at him, but Gene, I'm, I have nothing against him. I think he did a war chant is the model of any team site, any successful team site that's out there. I mean, Gene was the, this he started all this uh, back in like 1998 and grew it into a monster and and did phenomenal things with it most of what we do on Knowles 24 7 it's not that I'm copying Gene it's just that he was there in the beginning and you know it's kind of like Howard Stern right all the others they don't copy him it's just that he was the first to do it and you know much respect I got nothing but respect for Gene what they've created at War Chant um, the way that they go about it and still in the year 2020 is a little archaic, but hey, it works for them. Spice tea. I like <laughs> no, it. works I, there, for them. There will be a reconciliation at some time. Josh, you're just too, you're just too darn charming to be mad at for two decades, right? I'm sure they'll, some, maybe 2027 is the year where you guys hug it out. Yeah. So a couple more questions before I let you go and do Newberg things. Josh, you talked about assembling a team, which you kind of did at 24-7. So I'm going to ask you a question. Let's say Josh Newberg has to start his own Florida State-specific media oh, company. Geez. And it's got to be everything. we got to talk about recruiting, analysis, podcast, video, or whatever weird stuff that you guys dream up. You cannot use any of your current colleagues at Knowles 24-7 Sports. I don't want to – you got to go back and work with these guys. I don't want any hurt feelings because you just choose them all anyway because you're a big baby and you don't want to make anybody mad. So taking all of your current colleagues out of it, pick five people from the Florida State beat or beat adjacent that you would take with you to start your new Florida State media company. All right. Me and you. Me? Oh yeah. Liar. Me, you liar. Um Jeff Cameron. Um mm, so that we're at three. Mm-hmm. It, because it's gonna be more of like a podcast platform. Okay, so we're going audio. That's the only that's the only sort of value that I might bring. So I Yeah, but we're gonna now. write some stuff because you gotta break news breaking news is going to be written that sort of thing, but it's going to be, you know, content video and audio and, and that sort of thing. So, um, Oh, after that, I would pro I mean, can, is bud or is, is he considered, I work with him now. So now you work with him. So now you can't, so he's gone. Make it harder. Right. I'm getting Wayne. Okay. For sure. And, uh, who's somebody, out there that they wouldn't expect uh ira take ira okay i like that that's a good that's a good well-rounded group i really i really enjoy that um 
That's good. Okay. So what was it? It was me. I can't believe you said me. Me, you, Cameron, McGahey, and Schofel taking over the world. Do you have a... We're just going to do like five, you know, the five block window panels where we just all scream at each other and argue. <laughs> I love That's it. Part, I pardon the interruption, but like just five dudes like yelling at everybody. <laughs> what? You don't have to think of it just because this is on the spot. You weren't prepared for any of these questions. Potential name for this new Florida State Media Company. Got to have like Unconquered in it, right? Something, oh, yeah. Something Unconquered. Yeah, something Unconquered. It'd be like, um, uh, yeah, Unconquered Spear Talk 5. How about Tomahawk? <laughs> how about this? Tomahawk Chant 24-7 Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> lump them all in there yeah whatever dude just like a big voltron um all right that was that was good good answer we'd be off the bench (laughs) a nice turn of phrase all right final question i really really enjoyed doing this by the way um josh you've been at this you fell into it you've seen coaches come you've seen coaches go but let's talk about you josh five years from now the year 2025 what is Josh Newberg doing? Is he still covering Florida state for Knowles 24 seven or is he doing something completely different? Where are you five years from now? <sighs> pretend, say, pretend that your employers can't hear this and give me an honest answer. I would say I'm, I would say I'm probably going to not be at Knowles 24 seven. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just signed another two year deal, so I'm here for at least two more years and then we'll see what they want to do with me. Um, but you know, I never thought I'd be here for 10 years. I don't think it'd be crazy to see myself here in five years, but I don't think I will be. Well, I mean, what do we got? Tomahawk chant 24 seven Democrat. (laughs) That's, that's where I see you in five years. All right. That's it. That's all I got, Josh. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, Brendan, I enjoyed, I enjoyed being a part of the beat. I enjoyed being part of a hypothetical dream team, which I think was all just, you're just fluffing me up, but I enjoyed this. And I think this is a fitting end to the Knowles 24 sevens meet the beat series for myself, for all the others that were interviewed for the three gentlemen that interviewed us, Josh Newberg, Brennan Sinone, Chris knee, everybody at Knowles 24 seven, you guys do a great job. Listen, and because they do a great job, I tell you to support their sponsors, but they don't actually pay them anything anyway, so it doesn't matter. But you can give them five-star reviews. That's right. That little thing on that Apple podcast, hit the fifth star, say whatever you want, but just do it. Brendan is just a poor, high-strung guy, and you would make him feel so much better if you just gave him a five-star review. For Trey Rowland, your MC of the final episode of the Meet the Beat series. This is Knowles 24-7 presents on the Bench Podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Did I stick the landing? Monday. Federal agents! Here's where we can see them. NCIS Hawaii is back. New criminals to catch. Armed robbery, aggravated assault, murder. And new investigations to be solved. These guys were good, but even masters make mistakes. Vanessa Lachey and featuring LL Cool J. Violin Island, we got him. Welcome to paradise. 
A new NCIS Hawaii, Monday, 10, 9 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.